Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 127th show, and I am thrilled today to have our guest, best-selling author, Jeffrey Krams. Did I pronounce that right? Actually, it's Jeffrey Krams. Krams, author of The uh, Joe Biden Way, and... I know this has been somewhat of a controversial book for us to have on, but I really liked the book. And I liked that you can always learn from different leaders and different styles. And Joe Biden has a style that's unique to him. And I think we can learn a lot from it. So let's start talking about what's your professional background? Okay. Uh, just over 40 years ago, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds like a century, for God's sake. Uh, I started in publishing with uh, Prentice Hall. Um, uh, publishing business books way back in 1982. To give you an idea, that was the same month that um, In Search of Excellence was published. So that's when I started in publishing. I've been in publishing for 40 consecutive years. Now I'm a literary agent um, who who helps other authors, business book authors, get published. Um, But along the way, I became an author. And I did about half a dozen books on Jack Welch and Peter Drucker combined. I did um, a book on Donald Rumsfeld called The Rumsfeld Way, um, which was the first book and the best-selling book, and then worked with Secretary Rumsfeld on his own book for uh, Random House, and then um, started my own literary agency back in 2009 um, and produced uh, um, one or two bestsellers there. So um, I have a, a long history with business books. Hey, what's it take to become a best-selling author? What's the formula? You know, oh, well, it, you, you, publishers are only interested, Mark, today in authors who have the kind of platform perhaps that you have, let's say, for example, which means they're looking for people who have hundreds of thousands of names and, uh, that they can email um, or have a nationally syndicated show or have a have a top rated podcast because publishers have become reliant almost completely on authors who have platforms that can sell the books. So in the old days, it used to be that the publisher would give a marketing plan to an author saying, "Look at all the beautiful things we're going to do for you." And now the first question out of every publisher's mouth is, "What are you going to do for us?" That's how it works. So that's so you need you need obviously to be an expert in the field. Um, and then if, if you ask about how many copies you might need to sell, well, it really depends whether it's going to be a business book bestseller or a New York Times bestseller. But you're probably talking, you know, over 100,000 copies to get on the, a New York Times list, probably. Yeah. I, I, even when I, I've written six books for Prentice Hall, McGraw-Hill, right. you'd write a business plan just like you were raising capital. And right. you have to show them that you could sell books. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I wrote the books for, you know, um, credibility in the marketplace, but 
you know, if you were looking to write it just to make money, it's not a good uh, good deal because you're only getting about 12% after the advance is paid back. And so from a financial standpoint, those who self-publish, uh, it makes a lot of sense. But in this particular show that I run, I've um, told all the major publishers, Harvard, Wharton, Random House, that I wouldn't use self-published books. Uh, hence, uh, we don't do that here. Oh, but, uh, but certainly, if you were saying, hey, I want to make a living uh, doing this, it's infinitely better to, if you have that large audience following, just to self-publish your own book, because it becomes like any other piece of property or asset that you have. So Absolutely. interesting uh, that you do that. So why did you write this book? Because I've had a dozen or more people write nasty things to me about hosting a book on Joe Biden's leadership uh, because they feel like he really lacks his leader. And I don't want to get into the politics of it, but why did you particular? And it's very unusual for me to get any book that's, uh, and I've been reviewing books for a long time, uh, a book on leadership of a sitting president. You know, usually those books happen after they're gone and people have a retrospective. So tell me, why did you write this book? Well, first of all, I made the decision to write the book um, out of a spirit of, I, I guess, of uh, uh, euphoria, I guess, for having a new president. And uh, it was the day before uh, January 20th. To, uh, uh, 2021, before he was inaugurated, I said, I woke up one morning, and this happened five years ago when I had the same idea for a different book on Pope Francis, which I did called Lead with Humility. And this book was going to be called Lead with Empathy, because I saw Joe Biden as such a seminal figure when it comes to empathy. And that certainly stood in really marked contrast to predecessors. And I said to myself, this even and he had many other things going for him because I followed him very closely for years and years and years since, you know, listen, I was watching the the, the Nixon, uh, um, you know, um, hearings back in 72 when he beat Caleb Boggs by 3,100 votes when he was a 100 to one underdog. And he's never lost, I think, an election since then. So it's 50 years later. I thought he was going to be a great president, and I wanted to have probably the only business book, a leadership book on him, because most people don't do what I do, and that's all I do, is write leader. I just write leadership books, and that's yeah, it. And, and I thought it was very insightful. From the beginning of the book, you wrote about Joe, Joe Biden's empathy for people. Do you think he was wired that way, or circumstances related to family events made him that way over time? And how did those events influence them on a professional level? Uh, that, that, that's a great question. I think that, that um, you don't need to be born anything. I mean, there are people who you might say that they're, they're a born musician or they're a born leader. I don't really buy into that too much. Remember, Joe Biden was born right in the middle of World War II. So it was a very serious time. Uh, he spent his first 10 years in Scranton, Pennsylvania, obviously, which is very uh, blue collar before moving to De De Delaware. Um, so I, I just uh, saw him as someone who was going to be, I thought, a seminal figure and someone who came along at the right time, Mark. That's that. That's the thing. You know, had, for instance, 
there been a president sort of in his mold, a more traditional president that preceded um, President Biden. Then my enthusiasm for doing the book probably would have been probably far less, and I may not have done it at all. I thought he was the right leader at the right time. The country just seemed to be, you know, we're a 50-50 country, a 50-50 Senate. And I just thought that someone like a Joe Biden was the needed guy, the one who feels for people. And, there, and when, when you mentioned about um, what, what happened to him in his life, I mean, imagine this, Christmas of 1972, after he won that election, he lost his wife and his daughter in a, in a car crash. His two sons were in the hospital for over a month. He went to visit them back and forth, Washington to Delaware. Um, so I thought his empathy was just incredible. And then, of course, he lost his um, son, uh, Bo Biden, back in 2014, 2015. Um, and as interesting aside, the only Republican out of the Senate who, who came to Bo Biden's funeral was Mitch McConnell, which I thought was kind of as an interesting aside. But it's been um, his empathy, I believe, is really on full display, starting right out of the gate with COVID. Remember, I mean, we don't, you know, it's amazing how COVID just ruled our lives for so long. And now it's kind of in the back burner. I was in the supermarket this morning and I see, you know, some elderly people with masks here in Illinois. But uh, in general, um, uh, you know, COVID is being handled, at least. And he's the president who made it happen logistically by, by for instance, letting putting together an amazing science team, letting them do their job, point out everything they're doing wrong, not him, but let them point out themselves what was wrong with the agencies. And, you know, we have a president who really obviously cares about people and wants to get things done. The latest um, thing he, he got passed, which was uh, the, the Reduction Act, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, I mean, that's going to help people uh, of lower income across the country. And and it, it's obvious he wants to do good things. So, so, I um, thought, yeah. so one of the things, I mean, for sure, um, and uh, President Biden's given Donald Trump credit for the huge investment he made in getting uh, the shots ready. I mean, right. if it wasn't for his kind of entrepreneurial way of doing things and pushing quickly, to get this done, throwing a lot of money at it, it wouldn't have gotten done so quickly. And I admire the fact that Biden gave him the credit uh, for getting that done. And he ran with the baton and, and moved it forward. So let's talk about this. You wrote that Trump had an 85% turnover rate in his cabinet, and Biden hasn't had uh, any turnover in two and a half years. And I read in the Wall Street Journal that uh, President Trump had more turnover in his cabinet than all the presidents combined uh, to as far back as Truman, uh, oh. there wasn't as many. <laughs> now, what what was his criteria, Biden's criteria for picking cabinet members and the process he used for selection? Because supporters of President Trump can easily say that he thought outside the box uh, with a world experienced business executives like Rex Tillerson, I didn't think was such a bad choice. And like the private sector, if people weren't measuring up, he decisively pulled the trigger and hence made changes over. So, you know, there was one style of doing it as President Trump did, and people can argue about what the, if that style made sense. But then President Biden had a different style. So 
what's his style for you know and process for picking cabinet members? Well, first of all, we did know that um, that diversity was going to be one of the most important criteria that he employed in choosing members of the cabinet. And I looked at their faces this morning of the cabinet, and they're mostly women and people of color, you know, black and brown people, um, people from, from of all walks of life. And obviously, we have the first woman vice president, the first woman uh, vice president of color and of East Asian descent as well. So, so diversity was very important to him, not only for optics, which is a very important thing for presidents, but optics does not equal leadership. So the key was to, to be able to employ his love and his vow for diversity while getting the best people he can. And, you know, you look at someone like um, the, the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg. I mean, this man's a brilliant man, Pete Buttigieg, who obviously ran for president himself. The first op openly gay uh, cabinet member I, I believe we've had, uh, maybe I think ever. And um, so he, he would basically put together people close to him to help him with these things. That, that, that's sort of you know, the, the Biden way, that is putting together just these amazing teams of people who he, he knows and trusts. And that's it. If you look at a lot of the people across the board, it's people he's worked with before, whether he was in the Senate. I mean, you know, 36 years in the Senate, you make a lot of, a lot of uh, friends and contacts. Uh, and then, of course, eight years with, uh, with Obama. So I believe he, he attacked it very well. And, 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 and the proof is in the pudding. I mean, if you have no turnover, I mean, so people, you know, can't be messing up every day. So uh, I, I think this, the two styles are very interesting. And one more point about you, you pointed out Rex Tillerson, for example. And uh, uh, I thought that was an interesting decision when, he, when it was made. But it seems like politics is the only thing, uh, and presidential politics in particular, is one of the only professions where not having a background in the field seems to help you. If you look at the presidents who got elected, like Obama, he didn't have any experience. He was one term in, in Illinois as a senator, and he was a union organizer. But but he did, a, you know, what many argue was a, a very good job. Um, so you see really two very different styles. It was just more chaotic under Trump, obviously, than it is under Biden. Biden would put you to sleep and... Uh, Trump will wake you up, but I think we all needed some sleep after four, four years of Trump. We needed, a little, we needed a little boredom. You mentioned that President Biden believed his cabinet had to be culturally, ethnically diverse. What, what was important to him that the message he was trying to send by doing it? And you alluded to that in your last answer. Right. He, well, first of all, he, 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 he made a promise. Uh, actually, he made he made two key promises here. He promised that his vice president was selection, which he made in August of 2020, would be a woman. He didn't say woman of color, just a woman. And he also promised the, uh, the most diverse cabinet in history, even more diverse than President Obama's, which is true. And 
I, I think that um, he wanted to make sure that so many different groups were included in his selection because he believes that people of diverse backgrounds would be able to see things and have points of view that are not lockstep one after the other. You know, I always remember, I, I do remember the Trump cabinet meetings, you know, they didn't look very, very integrated in, ter in terms of, uh, of color and, and, and race. And also everyone seemed to have the same stick, which was to pay homage to, the, to Mr. Trump while um, Mr. Biden seems to want people who want to pay homage to the Constitution. So that, you, I, yeah. you also think that um, President Biden, when he made his selections, he wanted people who would challenge him, um, but in a professional way, not Absolutely. to embarrass him, but he know he needed people who would speak directly to him and, and challenge him. Absolutely. And but that, that that is one of, that's leadership 101. If you can't take, advice from anyone and you think only I can do it, uh, that's a problem. None of us can do it alone. I mean, all of us stand on the shoulders of giants in one way or another, whether it's in the way we were raised by amazing, like my parents were Holocaust survivors. So I'll tell you, they, they injected me with a ton of humility being Holocaust survivors. Um, and so, so, uh, uh, yeah, I, I just think that, uh, Again, Biden was the right guy at the right time. Um, I thought it was interesting that President Biden said he needed a Republican Party that was principled and strong. Why did he say that? And what can business leaders learn in terms of, of that related to their own competition? Very good. You know, um, Biden is, as a 36-year member of the Senate, is an, what they call an institutionalist which is a term that sometimes people say institutionalists, can, that can't sound more boring. That obviously, the, your audience knows uh, that he believes in everything from the intelligence agencies to FBI. And in that recent speech that he gave, um, which I thought was, 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 uh, was um, uh, quite compelling, you know, he talked about how um, America is under basically under threat of losing it's democracy. A democracy is no longer guaranteed. And uh, as a result, um, I mean, he, it's like a call to arms he delivered because I think this is the first time, like, I, you know, I, I was born, I guess, a baby boomer. And this is the first time I really have felt in my entire life that democracy is no longer a given. I thought it was. We all thought it was. And now, apparently, with the way with the way these votes are happening and selections are being made at, the, at some of the federal levels, I think we we're, we're facing some unprecedented times, even now, going forward. Especially, yeah, I, I think politicians, uh, leaders on both sides, have let the public down to where this lack of trust has um, totally um, hurt the corporate America. In a sense, it's like being in a company. We're all saying you don't trust the leadership anymore, and and hence uh, there's anarchy. As you mentioned, President Biden seems to always come across as optimistic. How important is it for a leader to come across as optimistic, especially in the face of adversity? How does one make sure the optimism comes across as sincere? Because it's easy to be falsely optimistic. 
but how that's do you right. do it in a way well, that's sincere? Because companies go through it. You know, when you all of a sudden your stock price drops, or that the things you thought were going to come out um, successfully, products uh, don't make it, and now you've got to make sure everybody isn't panicked and scared. How do you do that? Or how does he do that? And what can we learn from him? I, I, I lost you for one second. Could you just quickly su summarize that? Yeah. So uh, essentially, how do you come across as authentic and op optimistic at the same time uh, so I, people I don't lose hope and they all want to move forward in the same direction? Right. Um, first of all, this is an area where people are, are do tend to be wired a little bit more strongly one way or another. Um, I'm an optimist. But by by nature, I, I, even though I, I may have fears of things that might come, I think it's going to work out. Um, so it helps to be a sort of, a, a, you know, you, you probably can take your friends and say, you know, Mark, you could say to my friend Jim, you know, he's a half glass full kind of a guy. So it helps to be a half glass full kind of guy. Biden does see the good in people. He sees the good in our, our, our country. And for him, it, it is, I mean, I know this is a term that was used by John Meacham, uh, the historian. This is a battle for the soul of America. And, and, and um, Biden sees it that way. But he knows that great, you know, he wanted to be a great president. Will history remember him to be a great president? Well, it's, it could be a long shot, um, but he wants to he wants to do whatever he can to control the extre extremism that he sees that he's voiced about on the right, but by painting a more optimistic picture of the future, and and the only way it can come off as authentic is to be authentic. So Biden speaks authentically and he speaks, you know, he's, he's, he, the, see, the thing with Biden is though, uh, as an interesting aside is he's not charismatic at all. And this is something I talked to Peter Drucker about back in two, 2003. Charisma, um, which President Trump, for instance, had in spades, is not leadership. They're not the same thing. But we've come to sort of respect and admire presidents like if you're, you know, on the left, let's say Obama, because he was just this great orator. And you have here, you have Joe Biden, who was born with a terrible stutter and was practicing how to speak for decade after decade after decade. To this day, he still has a, has a stutter. So uh, it's, you know, I, I just find it very interesting that people can only see really greatness if you can deliver a great speech. And Joe Biden, I think, is very sincere and he's effective, but he's not seen as a great orator, nor is he. Uh, we have a question from the audience. Uh, how does Jeffrey uh, compare the leadership style of Biden versus other recent Democratic presidents, Obama and Clinton, in what uh, respects does Biden compare favorably over them? And does he does he believe that Biden is a better leader overall than they were? Well, I think, how long is your show? <laughs> no, <I'm, laughs> uh, here's the thing. 
let's let's take Obama for instance, because Clinton was almost like a different era in, in a way. But let's let's take something very specific, and that is in two thousand and nine, Obama got his stimulus package um, passed finally at seven hundred and eighty seven billion dollars. It was, and he was criticized that it was way too much, way too much. And then he he didn't go on the road to sell it effectively. He just didn't. And he was criticized by members of his own party. When it came time for the stimulus package, and I know it's a decade later, I mean, the, the first thing he did was a 1.9 trillion, trillion. So that's two, almost two and a half times what you had uh, out of Obama. And then he made sure to sell it because he knew what happened to Obama when, when that particular package was not sold to the American people effectively. So I think what we have, so how do they compare? They each have their strengths. I think um, uh, that Biden um, is an a, um, uh, effective president and how history will remember him, I think has a lot to do with whether or not he can get just a few more uh, packages passed because he's already got something like six trillion dollars of money passed in different programs, which is just unprecedented. So in that sense, that's when he's compared to someone like an FDR. But more recently, I think he 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 he, uh, um, he does very well up against Obama and up against Clinton, I think. I think I think they're all in the same ballpark. Uh, yeah, I, and I think Everybody, you know, I think America's always been lucky that we always get the right leader at the time we need him. Like Obama was calm, precise, analytical, and just the right guy at the right time. And, exactly. And so the country kind of needed Biden because they felt like there was enough excitement for four years. Uh, we needed something calmer, although people can dispute about uh, what they ended up actually getting because how they might perceive it. Um, one of the things that you mentioned before this last question is every leader, regardless the size of organization, wants to leave a positive legacy. And you wrote that Biden gathered presidential historians, John Meacham, uh, Doris uh, Kearns Goodwin, Michael Beschloff. They're like amazing authors. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Uh, brilliant people. Why did he bring them together? And how did that impact his thinking as a leader, since most business executives and presidents talk to writers after their tenure is over, uh, and he did it before it even started. Well, well, you know, the other thing he he did before anything um, uh, got started was he had to he had to choose his maybe successor and the vice president, right? I mean, that had to be, that was done, you know, months before the election. So that's also an unusual thing for, for that that is really only associated with presidents and people in, in power like power like that. But in terms of bringing together these historians, I think he wanted their viewpoints on the like the presidents who made the greatest impact in their minds and in their writings um, and compare and, and contrast and listen to these great minds talk about um, how different presidents handled different um, crises whether, you know, it was uh, LBJ in 1968, and you know, because that was important because we had 
such a divided nation then. And, uh, and again, we have a divided nation. So I think he was looking for all of the brain power uh, that he could possibly find. I think it's, it, it's, I think it's a, a leap to say, oh, he, he just did that because he wanted to be known as a great president. I mean, he has not invited these comparisons between FDR and LBJ, even though there does seem to be um, some comparisons that are valid between them. I just think he wanted the best minds he could find, put him in the room, have him talk it out so he could have the perspective of of not not decades, but even hundreds of years of history. If you go back back into the you know the Lincoln years, what it would take for him to be as good as those guys, like from their research, what are the ingredients to being a great president? When you say that's what he was looking for, I believe. I don't. I, I don't know how much um, was. I didn't find a great deal of information about what came out of that meeting. But that's what I think. My, it's my opinion that that he was looking for what could he do. What has great presidents? What have they done? And I think that's that. That might have put him even more firmly, Mark, on a path to focus on legislation, which is what he did. He has focused his presidency on his getting as much, you know, when people say, ah, president, they don't get anything done. Well, he got stimulus and then he got this one. And then he got, uh, and we didn't even mention the only, um, what do you call it? Not bicoastal. When you get president, when you get a uh, Republican and Democrats together, in the in the 1.2 trillion dollar infrastructure plan, I mean, you know, under previous presidents, there was always a joke. It was going to be infrastructure week, or it was going to be an infrastructure bonanza. Nobody got it passed, but with with a 50-50 Senate, he got a he got a a, a, a bipartisan bill passed, which may may be his greatest achievement to date. So um, let's go back a little bit. You had wrote that President Biden uh, was uh, his cabinet was 55 percent non-white, 45 percent women. Uh, and there was a chapter on this about force it, focusing on quality of leadership and not optics. But it seems that optics played a big role, which you talked about before, which is no different than major companies looking to do the same. Every major company is looking to put people of color and women into positions and, and show what they're able to do and let people know that we have diversity uh, in experience and, and background and culture. Why do you think this was smart and what should leaders take away from uh, his decision that would be useful for business and nonprofit organizations? Because as how, as a leader, do you make these those who weren't chosen, because this has been a problem and why people get upset, um, aren't chosen who may have had the same or better credentials than the, than those that were cho- chosen because they feel like, hey, I'm being penalized, especially uh, white males who aren't chosen. This is uh, this is like when a company uh, takes over another company and talented people in that company uh, who were taken over feel like, shoot, I don't, uh, I'm being overlooked and penalized because I was the company the uh, the people in charge before and now. I don't have a role and I can't seem to get a role here. So what do we learn from this and what can companies do to make sure people feel like they're not being excluded and it is inclusive for everybody? Or is there just going to be winners and losers? 
Well, I mean, the reality uh, of the United States is, you know, it's a meritocracy and we would hope that the best would come to the top. But yes, you're right. There are going to be people and white males in particular who feel passed over when they might have been more more qualified. I I think you have to accept some um, criticism and the some downside if you are going to stick to a principle that you have promised to make the cornerstone of your people selection process. And this goes back to uh, um, Good to Great. Um, when Jim Collins in Good to Great said, you know, the key is to first get the right people on the bus. Well, you know, Mr. Biden wanted to, wanted that bus to look like America. He wanted people of color. He wanted women. Um, he, I think he felt that women and people of color had been punished for a few hundred years. I mean, they, it's only been 105 years, I think, about since, uh, since women got the vote. So, I mean, at all. So I think, and obviously we haven't had a woman president out of, you know, 46. So I think that he's willing to accept that criticism to put together his his ideal diverse cabinet. Uh, The U.S. made an enormous investment in Afghanistan. President Obama ran on getting out out of there. Uh, President Trump put a plan in place to leave in his second term. President Biden actually executed the plan and left. Articles in the Wall Street Journal and other publications talked about how the low cost of staying there, uh, just a few billion dollars a year. In the business world, this is like giving up a market. You made uh, a significant cash and time investment. What was the calculus President Biden went through and what can a leader learn who inherited a similar situation from him? Well, you know, it's interesting. This is this might be a case where empathy uh, might have played a role. I mean, he didn't want to be the president who oversaw, you know, the last death. Uh, he did, obviously, but he didn't want. He, he, he even though we were losing very few few uh, troops, um, he wanted to end the war. Listen, he messed it up, and as it turned out. He, he made a, um, a, a terrible miscalculation, maybe sort of uh, not, I don't know, you know, the one thing I was thinking about this morning is the miscalculation was maybe as big as the Bay of Pigs under J- JFK. And, and so I think he miscalculated. And uh, when you and I were in the green room before, the, before our interview, um, you know, we talked about Afghanistan. And uh, I thought you had some very interesting points about it. And I, I think uh, um, he, he, no one foresaw that the Afghanis would just drop their arms. I mean, it's the exact opposite of what we're seeing in Ukraine. The Ukrainians are fighting tooth and nail for every single inch of their country. And uh, uh, David Petraeus, as you pointed out, um, is somebody who once who, who said that the Ukraine is going to win hands down this thing, and uh, but the 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 way uh, I, I mean Ukraine, but the way Afghanistan was handled on the way out, it just he didn't anticipate that it would take like nine days for everyone to lay down their arms, and that's what that that's what led to those horrific pictures and realities. But he did it after that. He did some 
something unprecedented and amazing that'll totally be forgotten in history. And that is he got 120,000 people out in a few days. So that was quite amazing that he got that many people out of Afghanistan. But it, it, it was, I think, his, his greatest mistake, the way, the, the way it was handled, the greatest mistake he's made thus far, I, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and lots to be learned about that. There's a subsection in the book called Understand that Talent is Overrated. Uh, my impression from interviewing leaders myself and experts in leadership, the talent is a baseline followed by hard work and developing an expertise. That said, five of the last six presidents were Ivy League grads, and President Biden was a state school grad. Does going uh, to good schools like University of Delaware and Syracuse, but not rank the same as Harvard, Yale, or Penn, make him more open-minded about where talented leaders can come from, hence not always selecting from the supposed talent pool of the elite Ivy League schools? And, and what can leaders learn from this? Yeah, I, I think, I think uh, leaders could learn not to get too hung up on, and I think we're going to be seeing this going forward. Uh, I think more now that I have kids going to college next year, um, you know, uh, going to a state school and, and um, I did uh, SUNY Albany in New York um, does give one a feeling of being among people just like you. And I think that was, that was his case. And then he went to Syracuse law. So that's also not, not, not Ivy League school, but I think the big the the bigger thing in terms of experience and how you might choose people has to do more with what Malcolm Gladwell wrote about, which I talk about in the book, the ten thousand hour rule, which basically says that to be amazing at anything, I mean amazing like the top top one tenth of one percent, say um, the Jerry Rice's in football, the Steve Jobs. It, when when he went back and did some research, um, the, actually the research was based on uh, um, research from Kay Anders Erickson from 1993, but it took 10,000 hours for these musicians in Europe, these violinists, to become amazing and at the highest, highest level. So I think that I was trying to make the point that Biden, 36 years in the Senate, and uh, eight years as vice president, uh, you know, 50 years almost in, in politics, that'll serve him well. He's got 50, 60,000 hours of, of experience behind him. And that's another reason that goes back to one of your original questions. Why did I write the book? I thought his 60,000 hours of, of practice politics was going to make him the only man who could get things past, say, uh, Leader McConnell and succeed on a grand level from a legislative perspective. And that seems to be coming true more so this week now with this latest one than a m month ago. Even. Uh, the American public are like shareholders and our partner countries are like stakeholders. When things aren't going well, as they haven't been this year with the stock market significantly down, interest rates are up and the divide in the country hasn't been mended. How does a leader present a reality that everyone can agree on and work to a common goal of fixing those problems? Well, that's that's a great question because you're right. I mean, every every nation um, that has any media or any access to media watches America. America is 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 sort of a model, 
at least a model democracy. And for instance, you know, you, it's interesting you mentioned the stock market. This stock market, for, for example, has been on a tear. Think about this, Mark. 2009, the Dow was basically at 6,500. Now we're 31, even with, with, we're down 20%, and we're still at 31,000 from 2009. So in, so in a dozen years, we went up 550% in the stock market. So we, we, we're what's known as the cleanest, dirtiest shirt in the hamper, meaning that's where people want to put their money in America. They trust America. The T-bills and stuff is still owned by China, trillion dollars. You know, uh, America is still the model, despite the problems, despite it all, under a, at least under a, uh, under a Joe Biden, we know what we're getting. Adding. Whether you like him, you hate him, agree with him or disagree with him, it's not you're not going to wake up every day with the feeling of, oh, my God, what happened last night? What was what was tweeted? And now we're going to uh, uh, we're going to war. So we don't have that anymore. And I think that Biden is, is keenly aware on America's role. I mean, he dealt with with uh, I think he visited 136 nations while uh, being in uh uh, in the Senate. So he he's keenly aware and he has people who are friends to him who lead other nations, particularly in Europe. Um, so I, I think he's actually doing a fine job, it, it, but it's it, it's going to take some time. It's going to take time and we're going to have to see how things play out. Typically, when a CEO retires or loses the battle to keep their job, they usually don't comment on their successor. And that's always been uh, a rule with U.S. presence, but that's changed as well uh, with uh, the last president. How should new and current leaders handle criticism from their successor without looking petty and defensive? Well, first of all, let, let's go back to, to, to your original um, assumption. You know, presidents tend not to comment on their predecessors, although the last Biden and Trump are the two who have, for instance. Um, and um, uh, that's an issue. But here's the interesting thing about Biden. During the campaign, late in the campaign, he was asked a question about Trump. And he said, listen, for four years, all we did was talk about Trump. I want to talk about the American people. And then he worked for months and months trying in every speech never to mention Trump's name. And only recently, and especially with that speech he made a few days ago, where, where he spoke of, of the extremism. I mean, it is an extremism on the right. Uh, not all Republicans, in fact, not the majority of Republicans, but it is Trump's party still. So this is such a unique situation where uh, where a president has been defeated in history, there's no president who's been defeated who's held sway over the party like this. It's still Trump's party, and what's going to happen is going to be fat. No matter what, how it plays out, it's going to be fascinating to see. I can't wait to see what happens. Uh, along the same lines, many leaders in government and in corporate world, when uh, pressed about a turnaround being slow or stalled, blamed the predecessor. President Obama consistently, uh, constantly reminded us in the beginning of what he inherited. At what point do you stop talking about the past and take responsibility 
for the current situation and focus your constituents on the future? Well, the answer is you should probably take responsibility uh, for things um, as quickly as possible, meaning almost just when you come into office. But again, I mean, I think Mr. Biden faced such an unprecedented, I mean, we have to admit that uh, whether you loved him or you, or you hated Trump, he was unlike any president. He was the reality star president. No one ever expected that in, in their lifetimes. So he tried desperately not to talk about him or not to blame him, but he is he realizes that it's not him that's under attack necessarily. Well, yes, but his greatest concern is that democracy, democracy, Mark, the Constitution. I mean, can you count um, the number of times that uh, Mr. Trump might have violated the Constitution? I think we're seeing this on, the, I mean, January 6th, we didn't even touch that. that. They almost took over the country, I mean, in America, not since 1812. That, so, so his situation is so unique, Biden's, because again, he has this, he has this, uh, this uh, person who, who led the country before him, and he's, he's still battling the evil forces that exist within that, cocoon and it's not going away and he's more more likely mr trump to face mr biden in 2024 who else is going to do it if it's not going to i mean we don't know trump could be you know anything could happen but uh as of today trump uh has had the biggest deficit to biden in six months he's about eight points behind biden in polling but that's forever away 24 2024 is years and years away. But you should take responsibility, in general, as a leader, take responsibility right away. You have to. I mean, that's what leaders do. It's there. It's, it's the, the buck stops here, Mr. Truman, right? So yeah. I, I feel strongly about that. Uh, along the same, uh, companies are wrestling now with the age limit. Uh, you know, and you're seeing this now, like, do I put the CEO? I think Target just increased the age limit for their CEO to stay in office because they wanted to keep him. Uh, president Biden is the oldest president in the history of the country. You know, and I just saw a poll by CBS where elderly people think there should be a, uh, a limit, age limit on somebody running anything, uh, at, which is interesting. It's not to say 100%, but the vast majority of 77% in the CBS poll feel there should be an age limit. So what's your take on that for both running the country and running a company? I mean, is, is should there be an age limit uh, to it? I mean, Rupert Murdoch must be close to 90, and he's still running his company on a day-to-day basis with support. And Summer Redstone ran his company into his 90s as well, and there have been a bunch of these. So what's your uh, take on that and what should companies think about as well? Well, you know, it's a, that, that's another question that um, that Peter Drucker um, had talked about because he said, now that we're living as long as we are, the whole um, sort of retirement at 65, that was, you know, that was 50 years ago. That's not today. Today, people need to work much, much longer and they must have much planned for longer lives and all of that. I do not believe there should be an age limit. 
I believe that if somebody is, is, is you know, Ronald Reagan was the oldest president at that time, I believe. Um, but if, if, if somebody is, is capable and people want to vote for him or her, um, especially her, I, I would be nice to have a woman president after all this time. Um, I think that there should be no age limit. And, and in companies, I think that's an individual um, sort of question. I think it depends what kind of company it is. I mean, if, if it's really a, a company driven by intellect and um, and human knowledge and 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 uh, um, not so much technology and robots, I think people of, of years um, have a lot to contribute. I mean, I just turned um, 61. And so I'm the same I mean, age. Yeah. You're 61. Yeah. You look like you're 40, 42, you son of a gun. I want to know who you <laughs> Thank who, you for who saying that. I want your beautician for God. You lent you lent mm-hmm. him to me. But um, yeah, I, I I think people have to work longer. I mean, because what are you gonna do with yourself if you don't work longer, for God's sake? And I like I said, I think let, let's have Amer- you know, Americans have done a pretty great job of choosing presidents over the years. And I, I think you put your finger on it, especially when they always seem to use what I call the pendulum effect. If we have one kind of president, they're going to vote in a different kind of president four years later and stuff. So, you know, so under that sort of thing, depending upon, let, let, let's say Mr. Biden decides for some reason not to run, even though he says he, he would run. We're probably going to end up with somebody far younger, I would imagine, than, than than either he or uh, Mr. Trump, uh, who's also right up there in years, um, because we always seem to, to go with the opposite of what we just had. Um, how does uh, President Biden manage his own shortcomings and what can leaders learn from him about that? Is he very self-effacing? He, I think being very self-effacing goes so far. I mean, I, I think any president who does not use the power uh, because you, you're the, the, you, the strongest person um, in terms of power on the planet. So you don't, you know, uh, speak softly and carry a big stick. Well, America has the biggest stick. I mean, we spend more money on, if you don't count Russia, we probably spend more money on, on, uh, on, on uh, the military than the next what, 27 countries combined. For God's sake! Um, so uh, uh, we have uh, um, a, a, a president who knows, I believe, how to come off as. I mean, he's a folksy kind of guy, not because he pretends to be. He's a folksy kind of guy. I mean, he's from. I mean, I've been to Scranton, Pennsylvania. And believe me, that's a really, really blue collar town, and then Delaware and Wilmington—that's blue collar. So you have a president. I mean, in a way, he was a blue collar president before he became the senatorial president that he became. Um, how does a leader uh, sell a vision to those who, who he has beaten? Because, you know, when uh, President Biden beat President Trump uh, in the election, he's trying to sell his vision. It's like a corporate takeover. And you've right. got to get the other side to buy into that vision or the takeover, as many of them do. They don't work out very well. Uh, how do you get the other side to buy into your vision and feel like they're part of the process and not being excluded from it, but really believe in what that vision is and want to make it happen? That's a great question. 
The first rule is don't alienate anyone, for God's sake. Don't alienate anyone. And uh, uh, when I say anyone, I mean probably people on the Republican side, although he had to do it on the, on, on the Democratic side because early, early on there were issues. There's always issues with Manchin and Cinema, but he had issues with them and the way he treated them in terms of there was some advertising. Anyway, um, he always talks about, this is what struck me about um, Biden, and I always believed him. He always talked about my Republican friends. And he, and he doesn't say that in any sort of pejorative way. He actually means it. And it kind of goes back to the Ronald Reagan formula of having drinks with Tip O'Neill and other folks from, you know, from uh, other side of the aisle that come over to the Oval for a, for a drink after, uh, after hours. And Biden, in all of his speeches, points out, and not all, but just about all, that uh, he is not the leader of the Democrats. He's not a leader of Republicans. He's not red. He's not purple. He's not blue. He's a leader. He might be blue, but he's a leader of all the people. And that's very important. You have to be inclusive and, and you have to say it uh, and mean it. And he does mean it. And that's why. And, and he's so likable that that's what that's Mark. That's how he got people to vote with him on that uh uh, uh, that bipartisan uh, $1.2 trillion uh, um, uh, infrastructure uh, plan. because And that's how he got people, uh, other people to vote to impeach um, Trump. Um, some Republicans, not enough, but some. Um, and it's because he reaches out to Republicans. He absolutely does. And, and that's how you make them feel inclusive. You include them. You don't say, I'm going to include you. You include them. And that means not only... Does he do it? But he gets people like Chuck Schumer in the Senate to do it and Nancy Pelosi to do it. So he has a good team in place. But there, but as you pointed out uh, in your previous question, these people like people like Chuck Schumer and, and Nancy Pelosi, I mean, they're in, in, going into their 80s, I think, pretty soon. So we're going to see yeah. a big change. Yeah, we're going to be see a big change in leadership, which is going to be very interesting and very exciting to see what happens. But I think there, there are going to be a lot of different sort of leadership changes um, in the next. Well, after the midterms, we're going to see how that happens, how that works out. Usually, it doesn't work out well for the party in in, in charge. Seventy-two percent of the time, they they lose seats. So, it's in both both chambers. So that's probably going to happen again. We would think, but it it, it looks better today than it did three weeks ago. How do you deal with the politics of? Um, when you become the top person and colleagues that you've had for years that you felt like you had a great relationship, you worked your way up together, and now those same colleagues kind of turn on you and put obstacles in the way as uh, certain Republican senators have done with uh, President Biden, people he'd known for 30 years, thought that they were friends, and now uh, they're undermining what he's trying to accomplish. So when a leader comes up in the corporate ranks and becomes the CEO, you know, in politics, you just can't fire them <laughs> and get mm -hmm. rid of them like companies. But in some cases, even in companies, people have contracts that can't be, you know, they can't be removed. So what what have did you learn from President Biden on how to handle those kinds of situations as he's done with the senator from South Carolina? He's he's 
in the early going, and then I, I believe it continued. He's had more Republican uh, Congress people and senators to the Oval Office than Trump did his entire four years. So he he's included these folks as best he could in these discussions, particularly like on the, on the leadership side. Um, and like people like, for instance, Leader McConnell, he, he has done his best to try to stay on his good side. But when when Leader McConnell said, my biggest goal here is to stop anything Biden's going to do, it's a difficult thing. I mean, in some in some ways, you're never going to change their minds. In fact, there's evidence of that. I mean, no matter how great, let's take infrastructure. Infrastructure was the one thing everybody agreed. The nation is in turmoil in terms of bridges and roads and airports. Yet, what, what did he get? Six, six Republicans? What are those Republicans? And then the Republicans who didn't vote for it went back to their districts and took credit for, 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 for it, even though they voted against it. So it's like if people are willing to blow up uh, America by by like not voting for even the one thing we all know we needed, you're facing an uphill battle. The, I, I, what I used to do when I was, you know, I wasn't a CEO, but when I was a, a publisher uh, for McGraw-Hill, for example, I would have various breakfasts with different constituencies. And um, I would invite them to to to, uh, uh, to a nearby hotel. Often combine that with some training, and that's that's sort of how you have to reach out to people, embrace them, and let them know that they're important to you. And somebody with a great deal of empathy can pull that off quite effectively. Last question: How do you think President Biden will be remembered as a leader during this turbulent time? Is there anything you think he needs to work on to come to up his game to improve America's competitive position? Well, you know, he has been so focused, Mark, on um, when we say competitive position, you know, it, lo- it does look like China is really going to be the, the country that we would have to c- compete with. But but uh, but the innovation, which is the key to growth in, in, uh, uh, in any uh, economy, uh, exists more in America than anywhere else on earth. Um, did you say how he, how will he be uh, remembered and how will he boost competitiveness? I believe he needs to keep on doing exactly what he's doing, for instance, um, in getting some of these big, big pa- packages passed because they're helping families. They're helping, they're helping me. I have the, like the best Obamacare uh, that you could possibly uh, buy, and uh, the government pays half of it. You, you know, um, so I, I believe he's doing this, the right things. He just has to keep doing them. And if he can, you know, let's say he ends up at the end of his term, and he got something like ten trillion dollars, and he's more than halfway there, passed in different kinds of bills and climate and 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 healthcare. He'll be remembered as as a as an excellent president, despite how people might see him now um, as as perhaps somebody who's who doesn't represent great leadership. I think I I think he's going to be seen as a very effective leader in the end. 
I can't thank you enough for spending the time with us today. I really enjoyed your book. In regards to the controversy, there's always controversy with any leader, uh, political leader, uh, and people really can't, can't judge until years later, they have to gain some perspective before they can say good or bad about anybody. But I thought uh, your book was well done and I thought uh, that was very insightful about a different approach to leadership and how President Biden goes about it. So again, I thank you. I thank all of you for uh, coming and listening today and we made sure we tried to keep the politics out of it and stay focused on what we could all learn from this leadership style. Everybody have a great weekend, Jeffrey. Thank you so much. And My pleasure. Uh, I hope to have you back again because you've got a lot of other interesting books uh, that you've been, uh, written, especially about Jack Welch, uh, because there's even question about now, how good was really Jack Welch considering what happened to GE? And it was basically his architecture that's there. Oh, I'd love to talk about that. Oh my God. Mark, you're, you're, you are one, uh, the, the one interviewer who read every page of my book, God bless you. You have an intellectual curiosity and an intellectual integrity that I don't see from other hosts every day. Thank well, you. Thank you for saying that. Everybody have a great rest of your day and a great weekend. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.